the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Speaking well, let's begin. According to the U.S. Center for World Missions in Pasadena, California, every five days around the world, one million people put their faith in Christ for salvation. Every five days. And this happens in countries around the world where people who come to Christ face persecution, they face imprisonment, and even death. Nevertheless, they are convinced of the truth of the gospel, and they put their faith in Christ. Their attitude is summed up in what we see in Philippians 2.30. For the work of Christ, Epaphroditus came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking your service toward me. These are people who start serving Christ knowing that there's a potential cost and they don't consider that. They consider serving Christ, knowing Christ to be more important. So that is happening. One million people every five days all around the world, but not here, not here in Canada, and for the most part, not here in the Western world. You will have it in Asia, a lot of conversions, Africa, it's estimated that within about 10 years or so, the large majority of sub-Saharan Africa will be Christian. It's happening in large measure in South America and some in Central America. The United States still kind of holding its own, but not in Canada, not anywhere in Western Europe, Australia. The countries that are the most prosperous, the most free in history, the most peaceful, are the ones where the gospel gets no traction at all. People just can't be bothered. And we wonder why. We look at Titus chapter 3, verse 3, and we read this. We ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And I've highlighted the word pleasures there because perhaps that is the single biggest thing in our society now. So many of us just cannot be bothered to even give Christ a fair hearing because there's just so many other things around to occupy our time. There's work, but besides that, there's pleasures. There's movies, television, there's school, and there's pleasures. There's going on the internet, spending so much time on social media, so much time gaming. It's all about pleasure and entertaining oneself. That seems to become the number one priority for people in the Western world. Uh, we see this again in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Know this. That in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty. All of those bad things we know, and then you have there in the yell, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Again, we just have this, this desire, this driving impulse to just get pleasure, just be entertained, just have fun, never mind the serious things of life. And nevertheless, okay, although that's the attitude, we still have to try. We still have to try. Uh, we're commanded in 2 Timothy 4, 1-2, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Okay. Right now, for us, it might be out of season. People don't want to listen. 
but we still have to do it. We still need to be preaching the word, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. So we need to do it. Even if there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, response, a lot of fruit, we need to be trying and we need to do a good job. You're probably familiar by now with First uh, Peter 3.15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks your reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So when people come and they're asking, and unfortunately it's precious few times now that people ask, we kind of have to take the initiative. When people ask, are you able to give a reason if you talk to them and they come back and say well why why should i believe this can you give a reason are you able to give a reasoned answer for why you believe what you believe you need to be able to do that if you want to do your best job now this is important don't get me wrong it's not just our method it's not an issue of if we have the right method if we know exactly the right buttons to push the right things to say people will come to christ the reality is that unless they are willing to respond to the drawing of God, our best efforts will go nowhere. After all, think about it. The majority of people to whom Jesus himself spoke rejected him. And we're not going to do a better job than Jesus did. I heard from somebody who spent a lot of time in a major campus ministry last year. And I heard some of the things they did. And it was impressive. They had some very innovative methods, clever methods. To, to strike up conversations with people, to get to, to talk to them, to try to interest them in spiritual matters, a lot of different programs and uh, outreaches. And I asked this person, okay, end of the year, how many people came to Christ through the ministry of this particular mission on this particular campus? And the answer was two. Two people. And a universe with an enrollment of uh, 75,000 people. And with the best efforts of this ministry. So we may indeed be in those days where people just don't want to hear, but we still have to do the best we can. And I think of this account of Mark uh, in Mark chapter 6. And this is after John the Baptist has been arrested. You know, John the Baptist was the prophet sent to prepare people for the coming of Christ. And he kind of got off mission and started blaming Herod, the king, for uh, Manga's brother Philip's wife. And that really annoyed him, especially annoyed his, the woman he'd married. And she had him arrest John and put him in prison. She wanted to kill him, but she couldn't. Herod was kind of afraid to do that, knowing that he was a just and holy man. He protected him, kept him in prison, but didn't kill him. And the interesting thing we read in Mark is when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. This king was so teed off by the words of the prophet, put him in jail, and yet he listened to him. And he started listening to him gladly. And boy, I would love to know what John was saying to Herod that made him want to listen gladly. Alas, we don't know. It's not being recorded for us. But to help us in this, there is one detailed example that is recorded for us, one detailed example of how to talk to somebody, how to try to stir interest in the gospel message, and that was done by the master himself, Jesus. It was his encounter with a Samaritan woman at the well of Sichar in John chapter 4. And it's a particularly interesting one because this is a, a Samaritan woman from Samaria. The Samaritans did not like the Jews, but mostly because the Jews didn't like them. The Jews looked down at them. They, they saw them as, as not true Jews, half-breed people. 
they prefer just to have nothing at all to do with the Samaritans. So Jesus even approaching her would already have been seen as a strange thing, but he did. And so let's go through this encounter and see what we can learn. Starts this way. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sichar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's about noontime. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. To this point in the story, what are the things we could learn here? What did Jesus do that we can do? It's the number one thing, anybody. The number one thing is he took the initiative. He wasn't hanging around the well there hoping that she would ask him a reason for the hope that is in him. It's rare that people do that, at least before you start up the conversation. So he took the initiative. That's the first thing to notice. Okay? You need to do that. You need to take the initiative with people if you want to bring them the gospel. But the second point is that he didn't start out saying, did you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Most people just don't want to hear that. And they might think you're some kind of religious nut bar. What he did instead is he came from the approach of a point of contact. She's come to the well. She's drawing water. So he's talking about drink. Very obvious. Nothing apparently spiritual what he has to say. But perhaps he knows that this is going to elicit a response from her. Because as I said, for Jew to talk to her. It's already very strange. And she objects. He, does, he doesn't pay any attention to the objection. He just keeps on going. And you notice how he takes that same theme of water, that's the point of contact, and adds to it, expands on it, in a way designed to arouse her interest. He says, I'm a living water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Now, there's something else I want you to notice there. Saying, if you'd known, you would have asked. He is making it clear up front that what he has to offer is valuable. She would want it. Far too often, we have the opposite approach. We act as if people are doing us a favor by listening and doing us a favor, a great favor if they would actually believe. I mentioned this before. There's a, a church in... Virginia, they would have a guy stand on the sidewalk on Sunday mornings with a, a wad of $5 bills, and he would hand them out. If you would sit in the service, you got $5. And, you know, he's trying his best. It's, I suppose, innovative. But the message that's sent to people is, this must not be valuable. You don't pay people to take something that's not valuable. People would want to take something. They would even want to pay you for it. And Jesus is making it clear right away that what he is talking about, what he is going to bring up, is something that's so valuable she would want it. And because it's on a point of interest, point of contact, she is interested. She's probably still thinking in terms of just water because it's a big job in those days to go to the well, draw water, water is heavy, carry about 10 pounds a gallon, carry it back to her house. And if there's some way around that, she's going to have interest. Let's continue. 
She shows doubt though, okay? There's a certain interest, but there's doubt and there's objection. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank for himself as well as his sons and his livestock? There's an immediate objection. When you broach the gospel, there will be an objection of some sort or another. And usually it's something that shows disbelief. She doesn't believe. How are you going to give me? You don't have anything to draw water from. You know, you're just, you're just talking smoke here. And often that initial objection will be that sort. You're talking nonsense. How could it be serious? And what does Jesus do? This, this is important because he does not address her objection immediately. It is so easy when people raise objections to get sidetracked and start answering each and every objection. The problem is, if you answer one objection, they'll bring another one, and then another one, another one. You'll never get to the main point. So what Jesus does, he doesn't even respond to the objection. He goes on with what he was saying. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He has done now. He had the point of contact as the water. She's thinking in terms of the, the liquid that you need to drink. And he has now used that point of contact to move on to what he really wants to talk about, moving from material things to spiritual things, to eternal things. We have fountain, living water, a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He didn't let himself get sidetracked by the objection. Questions are legitimate, certainly, sometimes. Often they're asked just to shut down the conversation. Sometimes they're legitimate. But you have to decide, is this the time to deal with the objection or do you move on and say, you know what, that's a legitimate question. We'll come back to that, but let me finish what I'm saying here. And Jesus didn't even ask. He just went right on. And he has her hooked. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She's still thinking in terms of the material. She does, as I said, she does not want to have to come there every day with heavy buckets, carry back on a yoke on her shoulders, a lot of work. She's still thinking in terms of material. And what does Jesus do next? He hits her with a curveball. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. Those are for a loop. What does that have to do with living water? Nothing. Nothing apparent. Why does he do it? How does the woman uh, respond? She says, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And why does she say, I have no husband? What do you think? Just a reason. From her point of view, what? Maybe, well, you know what? He doesn't want to give this to me. He doesn't care about the, the woman. He wants to give it to the man. The man's going to get the credit. The husband's going to get credit. I'm just going to deny I even have one. But then there's a punchline to something we can't do, and Jesus could. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. In doing this, he has exposed two things. Number one, her sinfulness. Samaritans claimed to be following the law of Moses, and what she was doing was not right, and she knew it. He exposed her sinfulness at the same time he exposed his power because he knew these. How could he? This is another thing in our witnessing. You need to 
expose why we need a savior. The issue of sin has to come up. It's something that we want to leave out. People don't like to hear it. People can become very defensive. So there are proper ways to do it, and there are less appropriate ways to do it, but it has to come up. Because if all it is is, look, Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, most likely the answer will be, you know what? I like the life I have. Okay, that lovely plan for Jesus is going to include me doing uh, moral things that I don't want to do. I want to be as nasty as, as, as I want. But no thanks, you know, my plan for life is better than Jesus's. There has to be some talk about the other side, why you actually need a savior. So this is what he's done with that one punchline. He's done both. He's, he's, he's presented his power. We need to do that about Jesus. And he has exposed her sin. What is her response? The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. What is the point of this response from her? Is she uncomfortable with her, her sinfulness? Whatever the reason, she is deflecting. Okay, okay, I see your power. I perceive your prophet. Well, let's start discussing theology. Let me ask like a theological question. You know, maybe you can settle it. Never mind about me and my lifestyle. I'm not even talking about the living water anymore. Um, let's you know bog you down in a question so I don't have to face what you're telling me. And that will happen a lot today. People start bringing up things like, well, what about the problem of evil? Why is there evil in the world? What about other religions? What about people who never heard? And these are fair questions if they're asked honestly, and we have answers, and, and by and by you give them answers. But first, get to the ultimate point. People say, there, why is there evil in the world? How can there be a good, loving God if there's evil in the world? You can deal with that by and by, but the point is, the fact that the world exists and life in it proves that there's a God. Your question is about what God, what God is like, not whether there's a God or not. We cannot ignore the reality of God because we have questions about how he do, does things. And that's what you have to do and get to the details later. And this is what Jesus does in his answer. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And what he's doing here is, again, he's not allowing it to get deflected off onto a tangent. He wants to come back to the issue of salvation. Now, a lot of us miss this when we read it, but here's a second demonstration of his power. She has no clue about this. She knows that she's had five husbands and the one with whom she's living is not her husband. She knows that, so she knows he can see these things. How is it that they will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father? Because in a scant 37 years from now, from the time Jesus is speaking, he knows the Roman armies are going to come in, they're going to destroy everything. There's not going to be worship in Samaria, there's not going to be worship in Jerusalem. Nobody's going to be worshiping there. How does he know this 37 years in advance? But you don't, she doesn't even notice it because she doesn't know what's going to happen in 37 years. We, looking back, do know that. But he brings the issue back then to salvation, brushes very quickly through her objection, and gets back to that main issue, salvation. And he says, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for this Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Doesn't matter where, the place isn't the issue. It's the how. And 
so now this lady has a spiritual interest. She, she does, like everybody else, she does believe there's, or almost everybody does believe there's a God. But the things he has said, the, the cleverness in how he went about it, arousing her interest, dropping that punchline, she's getting more and more interested in who he is. And an idea is coming to her, possible ideas. Could it be? She's not sure. She doesn't even dare to ask directly. But she says that as a statement. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, she could just be saying this as to end the conversation. She could be saying, you know what? We can't know. We'll just have to wait for the Messiah to come. He'll settle it. So no point in arguing further. Or she could have gotten an inkling. We don't know which one. But either way, Jesus' next bombshell will deal with either. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You can't deflect it now by saying, you know what? We can't answer this until the Messiah comes. We'll just have to wait around and we can put on the background to there because Jesus is now confronted her with I am. Notice that he is in uh, italics. He actually says, I who speak to you am. I am. So if you were trying to deflect, it doesn't work because the Messiah is here. If you were actually showing interest, your interest in the Messiah, again, he's here. And now she's faced with the inexorable truth, unavoidable truth, inevitable truth, and she has to respond. And that's, that's where our witnessing is pointing to. Salvation and salvation, the Messiah, the Christ, who he is, what he does for you. So as we follow the story, what is the result of what Jesus did? We see that the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. You see, your convert preaches. There is fruit from your work, and there's secondary fruit from the work done by the convert. And not only that, they went out of the city and came to him. Your work then, when we take advantage of the opportunity, it leads to more opportunities. These guys came. Some of them might have just believed what she said, Others, though, are going out of the city because they're interested enough in what he said to find out for themselves. I read, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So the Samaritans had come to him. They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. From one person, from when it says this one lady, because Jesus took the opportunity, because he went about it wisely, finding first a point of contact, not hitting her right away with something she doesn't want to hear, finding a point of contact, raising her interest, moving then from her interests into spiritual matters, always making clear that this is something valuable, then demonstrating his own truth, the truth of who Jesus is, and then facing her with that unavoidable fact that he is the Messiah. The result was not just her coming to him, but her in turn bearing fruit, bringing people to him, also giving him more opportunities to speak to more people. You had this big harvest. Now, again, there is no, this was spectacularly successful. It's not always like that. 
but do make your approach the very best. Do show wisdom in how you go about preaching. Okay? And who knows what can happen as a result. Let me leave you with this today. Hudson Taylor. You probably know who Hudson Taylor is. Hudson Taylor was a fellow born in England in 1832. No, humble kind of beginning. So it's not like an upper class family, but probably upper middle class. Came to Christ at age 17, and the very same year, dedicated himself to missionary work in China. He had this burning desire to bring the gospel to the Chinese people. He uh, reached China in 1854. He went with one of the established missions. And for the next 51 years of his life, was dedicated to missions to China. Unlike many of the missionaries in those days, he dressed in the native garb. He actually got a cue for himself, as was the, the style of China in those days. He was able to preach in Mandarin, Chaozhou, and Wu. In the Ningbo dialect, he actually translated part of the New Testament into that dialect for the Chinese people. Just as, a, as an aside, you want to do missionary work, you need to know the language. You don't know the language, you're not doing missionary work. He made the effort to learn these. He also learned Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. All self-taught, autodidact. Went to medical school, he didn't finish it, but he learned enough that he was able to go to China with offering medical supplies and medical help and so on. He grew unhappy with the mission that he was with because they, they only preached around the coastal areas. They would not go into the interior of China. And so in 1865, he founded the China Inland Mission, which was the first group that actually went into the interior of China to bring the gospel to the Chinese there. His 51 years was, was kind of off and on the field. About half the time he was in China, half the time he was going around raising money and especially raising missionaries to go to China with him. So as a point of interest, only the British were allowed to go. Only the British were the hardy enough, tough enough to stand the rigor. So he thought, but he would take money from everywhere. He was in, he was in Toronto in the 1890s raising money. He was so impressed with the quality of, of the, the Canadian people that he, he opened the missions to Canadians as well. And Toronto Bible College was built at that time specifically to train missionaries to go to China with Hudson Taylor. And that's what became Ontario Bible College and uh, Ontario Theological Seminary, where, where I went for my studies. Toronto was called Toronto the Good in those days. And Toronto was also known as the missions capital of the world. Toronto sent out more missionaries per capita than any other city on the planet. Things have changed. But this is all the work Hudson Taylor did. But let me ask you one question. In all that time, guess how many converts he made? 51 years, about half of it in China. He spoke the languages. He, he brought the medical science. Guess how many converts Hudson Taylor made? And the answer is one. One convert in 51 years of effort. But that one, in turn, made hundreds more. By the time of his death in 1905, the China Inland Mission had brought more than 800 missionaries to China. They had founded 125 schools and directly resulted in 18,000 Chinese people coming to Christ. And the witnessing they did led to thousands. Well, you can imagine the spillover there, folks. So don't give up, even if you see little results, little direct results from your work. We're living in a day and age and place where people just are not open to the gospel, but keep trying. Keep trying, because who knows what God will do with it. But do it well, folks. 
speak well. Like Jesus at the well, hence speak well. If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Truth in My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you. Thank you.